Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, as we read verses 10 through 18. Hear now the word of God. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is... No exaggeration for us to say that your word is marvelous and the truths that it reveals to us are marvelous. And that is because the God revealed in your word is perfect and full and gracious and kind. Would you give us a great joy in remembering once again the glory of your son who lived among us so that we could have your wrath lifted from us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You may notice some overlap between our reading in Hebrews last week and our reading this morning. One of the things we did last week was we observed two reasons why the Son of God became incarnate. And what we said was, that first the son was born to fulfill God's plan for mankind. And second, we saw that the child was born to bring many sons to glory. And so today what I want to do is just keep moving forward in the text. I want us to stay in the same passage in Hebrews, and I want us to keep following the argument. What was the argument that he made last week? The argument of the author of Hebrews was that Jesus is superior to angels because he actually became a brother of the human race. He, he was born, and he lived among us, and he was made of the same material that we are, the same, same family that we are born from, the family of Adam and Eve. He came from the same source. He, his human nature was made from the substance of Mary, and because of that, we, to use the language of Hebrews here, we share the same source. So this means that as our brother, he can bring many sons to glory. 
Uh, The way that the early church fathers put it, if I have my quotations right, it's Irenaeus who said this, that which the Son has not assumed, he has not redeemed. We need to be redeemed by one who is like us. So I tried to make the point that, that Jesus was not born into this world to make an appearance. He was born to make a rescue, right? He didn't, he didn't come just to give us a season. He came to give us redemption. But that also is not the only reason that he was born. And so today, let's keep reading. Let's keep going along in the argument from Hebrews because what we have before us is beautiful and glorious. And the amazement then doesn't just stop at what we saw in the text last week. That was not the sum total of it. And in fact, even this week's passage is not going to completely uh, explain for us all the greatness of the incarnation, but at least we can do justice to the passage. At least we can see what the author sees that he wants us to see. And so this week, two more reasons why the Son was incarnate, why he became flesh, why he dwelt among us, why he was born. First, the child was born to destroy the power of Satan. Second, we'll see this morning that he was born to become a faithful and merciful high priest. He was born to destroy the power of Satan. He was born to become a merciful high priest. Today is a day to remember the incarnation, but not because the incarnation itself accomplished the rescue. The incarnation itself did not accomplish the redemption, but it was the first step in our rescue. And it was necessary for us to be rescued. And so today's two points will show us two more reasons why Jesus became, the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. Two more reasons for worship. So let's look look at that today. First, we see that the Son was born to destroy the power of Satan. Look again at verses 14 to 16. Uh, The author says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Uh, One of the things that I found fascinating is to think about this, especially I don't, don't understand it entirely, and I, maybe some psychologist has tried to figure this out, but especially during the Victorian era and afterwards, uh, people became very fond of telling ghost stories at Christmas time. Uh, people became very fascinated. There are whole collections of books out there, and they just, they're just Christmas ghost stories. Uh, books that, that, that people would pull out around the fire on Christmas Eve and they would just read spooky stories. And for some reason, people like doing this. And, uh, you know, the, there's a great tradition of those things. But isn't it interesting that we would do that, that people would do that? And maybe, I don't know if you, any of you do that, but certainly the English, the British, were very taken with this tradition. Isn't it fascinating to, to such, during such a happy time to do something so weird to yourself. <laughs> to think about something so grim, so strange, so dark at a time that's meant to be so joyful. Well, you know, we don't ordinarily think much about Satan or demons during the Christmas season. I think instinctively we think what a strange thing. Um, it sort of breaks the mood, right? But perhaps we need to think 
Just as this text is showing us here, we need to think more about what the world was like apart from the coming of Christ. Jesus was born into a world ruled by a yet undefeated Satan. That's where he was born. So before Jesus came, think about the world. In fact, the author is encouraging us to think about the world before the coming of Christ. The world was in a dark place. Before the coming of Christ, the the devil had the power of death. Uh, The book of Mark speaks of the devil as being a strong man who was bound at the coming of Jesus. Before that, he had the run of the house, Jesus tells us. Um, Jesus calls him a murderer in John chapter 8. He's called a, a deceiver. But here is the thing that scripture shows us over and over again, that at the cross, the author is saying this, the power of Satan was decisively broken. Even as it's not completely eradicated yet, it's not as though Satan is entirely impotent by this point, but the destruction of Satan is begun and its completion is still future. This is why we can still see him actively opposing believers in the New Testament, opposing the spread of the gospel and yet not able to overcome the message of the gospel, not able to overcome the Holy Spirit and his work. And yet Satan is active in this world and yet his power is broken, soon to be completely destroyed forever. The way that the, the son achieves this was through two actions. You see it here in the text. The author uses two verbs. He uses the word destruction and he uses the word deliverance. The destruction of the devil and the deliverance of his people. What he does to Satan and what he does to his people. He destroys Satan. He delivers his people. Um, The newborn Jesus looks like a sweet baby. And yet the truth is he's a destroyer. He's an adorable little destroyer. (laughs) And an adorable little deliverer. First... The text says he's a destroyer. He came to destroy. Uh, What did he come to destroy? He came to destroy the works of the devil. That's how the scripture speaks of the works of Jesus in Colossians 2.15, which says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so in his death, Paul says he triumphed over the demonic rulers of the world. He's He's not talking about Caesar. He's not talking about a politician. He's talking about the same thing the author of Hebrews is talking about. The one who had the power of death, the one who who ruled during the time of darkness in Jesus. He no longer has that power. He has been disarmed. Think of of who we're talking about here. We're, We're talking about the devil. We're talking about the serpent. We're talking about the old enemy of God's people who plagued us since the very beginning, in, beginning in the Garden of Eden. Right? The tempter who introduced the lie that Adam and Eve believed. God is selfish and he doesn't love or care about you. You will not surely die. He's lying to you. That lie began with him. And so we're talking about the devil. We're talking about the, the tormentor of God's church, the tempter of God's people. He's, he's the one who believed that Job would curse God. And he was interested in seeing him do it. He's the one who accused Zechariah, the high priest, into believing that God is not a great savior who can cleanse your sins. 
The devil's the one who tempted Jesus and demanded that Jesus bow down and worship him. He is our hateful enemy. And the author says he's broken. The author says he's been disarmed. And it's not just that the devil is disarmed of his power, but Jesus defeats him in a definitive way. Look how he puts it here. He says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So he speaks, he speaks in terms of destruction. That's what Jesus has done. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus has begun. Now, sometimes I don't know how much you ever encounter this doctrine, but I think it's important for us to occasionally touch on it when we have reason to. I want you to be careful not to confuse the destruction of, devil, of the devil with the annihilation of the devil. Uh, to annihilate something is to cause it to cease to exist. The plan is not for Satan to cease existing. Instead, the plan by God is for him to be so devastated and to experience eternal destruction and judgment that he will never be able to torment God's people again. Um, you see this most clearly in Revelation chapter 20, where it says that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. Um, earlier on in Revelation, we're told that the smoke of this torment goes up forever and ever. It goes up forever and ever because the devil is not annihilated, but still exists in some form in the lake of fire forever. He's not annihilated. So we're talking about eternal punishment. We are not talking about final destruction or elimination or annihilation. So the picture that scripture gives us is not of Satan's annihilation where he ceases to exist. There's a reason for this. There's a reason why it would be unjust for Satan to be annihilated. The reason it would be unjust for him to be annihilated is that he has been an enemy of an infinite and eternal and holy God. And so his crime is not a finite crime with a finite punishment his crime is an infinite crime against an infinite God who is glorious and holy. Annihilation would let Satan off the hook. Because at some point, his offense against an infinite and perfect God would be completed. And then it could be said that God's holiness is finally satisfied. And yet, if the God who is assaulted by Satan is a holy God, and if he truly is of infinite greatness and value, there is no end to the violence done to God's glory when someone such as Satan goes against him. Satan is destroyed in the lake of fire forever and ever. And the author says that the necessary condition of achieving this defeat of Satan was the birth of Jesus. Second, he says, the incarnation is how people are delivered from lifelong slavery. That's how the, the, second, verb in the, the, that's the second verb that the author uses in verse 15 in the incarnation, taking on flesh and blood, he delivered those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Um, this is very countercultural. This is just this is just so different from the way that the world thinks. We don't usually think of sin as something that enslaves. Um, one of the most famous places in all of America is Las Vegas, right? a place that is presumably full of freedom as modern people think of it, and yet it's also called Sin City, right? You've got these two things going on. 
uh, and they're thought to be part of each other. The, the sin of the city and the supposed freedom of the city. Modern people think so differently uh, from God about freedom, don't they? They think that freedom means being able to do anything we want and, and especially to sin. If you're, if you're free to sin, who's freer than that? And yet Jesus says, if you sin, even if you wanted to do it, and you do, he says, even if you sin, you're not free. Listen to John 8, 34. Jesus answered, answered them, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. You're not freer because you sin. You're enslaved. In Romans six sixteen, Paul speaks in the same way. He says, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So what scripture is telling us, Jesus is saying it, Paul is saying it, is that we are all slaves to someone. Because the question is, who is your master? Who is enslaving you? Who's ruling you? Because unless the master is dealt with, you will never be free. And then Paul goes on to say to believers, you were once slaves of sin. Sin City, to to put it bluntly, is not a place of freedom. It is a place of bondage and enslavement. It's a giant slave colony. An enslavement that only Jesus can break. And that's what the author says here. He, He shared in our flesh and blood to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, right? The child was born to destroy and he was born to deliver. He was born to set slaves free, to defeat the enemy and to, def- and to deliver us from our old master. And the son of God has done both of those things by becoming one of us. Now there's an argument here. There's an argument here from the author of Hebrews and the argument is, that he had to be born to do both of those things. He had to be born to do both of those. That's what he says. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy. He's talking about the incarnation. He's he's talking about Christmas, right? He's, He's saying that you need, you want this, Because it was God's means of destroying the slave master. That's how the chains get broken. It's how the sin of Adam doesn't crush and ruin and destroy us. So, surely you see the argument here, right? The full answer of the why of the incarnation, or at least the next part of the argument for the incarnation. To destroy the devil, he had to become one of the slave children. He had to become one of those that the devil had enslaved. He had to throw down the slaver, to steal the keys, to set his fellow men free who joined him. He had to to share in our flesh and blood because this all started with us. It It was our fault. It was our fault as a human race. And so humanity was also responsible for ourselves. We needed to be delivered by a man. Without the incarnation, there's no destruction of the devil There is no deliverance of those who were enslaved. He had to become what was set free. We needed him to assume our nature. The the author argues here that this is because of what verse 16 says. Verse 16 says, surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Um, Angels don't know what it's like to be redeemed. 
First, first Peter 1.12 says that the incarnation is something into which angels long to look. Why do they long to look? Angels are amazed to see the privileges that redeemed sinners have. In, in Jesus Christ, think about this. Believers are raised above the angels. We're raised above the angels in privilege and status. They don't know what it's like to be redeemed or glorified. Um, they'll never experience those things themselves. There is no such thing as salvation for angels. Um, all they can do is look into these things and marvel at them. They're so limited. They don't have the privileges we do. When it says it's not, the, not angels that he helps, the word the author uses for help here is literally takes hold of. Um, the Greek word is lumbano. It's this thing that you grab onto, you seize hold of. Um, he doesn't take hold of the angels. He takes hold of humanity. He lumbanos humanity. He doesn't lumbano the angels. See, in the incarnation, what did he do? He grasped onto the human race in a way that he didn't with the angels. And he never lets go. There are fallen angels. There are angels who've fallen. They don't know redemption. They can't know redemption. It's not possible for them because he didn't become an angel. But he will always be a man forever and ever. He became linked with us. He became linked with us so that our salvation would be secure. If he was going to help angels, he would have become an angel. To help mankind, what did he do? He became a man. And our need for help was so desperate that it required nothing less than the real, true, full enfleshment of God's own son who was born to destroy the power of Satan. Second this morning, if we keep going to verses 17 and 18, we'll see the second reason the son was born. Why was the son born? The child was born to become a merciful high priest. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So uh, look at the argument here. The goal of the birth of Jesus is to destroy Satan and deliver us from sin. But the means to do that is through his service as a merciful and faithful high priest. So the assumption here is that humanity can't be helped. We can't be delivered from sin's power and death's power unless we have a high priest who is merciful and faithful. And the other assumption is that only the Son incarnate could ever fulfill that task. So the means of being rescued is through this office that only the Son of God could fulfill. The author's telling us that there is something mandatory about the incarnation if we are to be saved. God could have, in his wisdom, decided not to save us. He didn't owe that to us. He, he didn't have to give it to us. He, he, he wasn't obligated to do that whatsoever. But if we were to be saved, we needed a high priest. We needed a merciful high priest. The principal work of the high priest in the Old Testament, you may remember, was to make atonement for God's people, for sin, so that God's people could be forgiven. 
And the merciful and faithful high priest was necessary if we were to ever receive, here's your million dollar word for the day, propitiation for sins. Right? The assumption here is that we need and want our sins to be propitiated. There's a word you probably use all the time in everyday life, right? Propitiation. Um, how often are we all talking about propitiation in our everyday life? Well, I hope we actually have reason to, but I suspect we are not talking very much about that word. Uh, propitiation, what does it mean? It means to restore to someone's goodwill or to remove someone's wrath. And so this verse is saying that in order for God's wrath to be lifted from his people, the son had to serve as their high priest, right? So there's an, there's an awful lot here, right? For some people, for some people it, would be, it would come as genuine news that God's wrath is a real thing. And, and it's not because they haven't heard the caricatures of the angry preacher in popular media foaming at the mouth and screaming about the wrath of God. Um, everyone's seen that caricature before of the preacher who just seems a little too happy about the existence of the wrath of God, as though it's something you should really be thrilled about. Um, the real reason the idea of God's wrath surprises people today is that people actually just can't imagine God has anything to be angry about, right? Because it all starts with our view of who God is and and what he's like. People assume that God is like a chill old grandpa figure who just knows how to overlook all the foibles of his grandchildren, right? Um, If you're a parent or a grandchild, you know how sometimes it's easy to look at those children and just see only goodness, Maybe that's not so hard, easy to do. But it is very easy, though, to see the good in your child. And people sometimes think that that's the way God is towards us, that he doesn't have anything to be angry about. Everything we do is perfect and beautiful because he's like a grandfather figure. And because we basically think of ourselves as good-natured, we think that God must think the same thing about us. And what that means is there's a big problem here because we are, we, in our thinking, we are not taking the fact that God is morally pure seriously. We don't think seriously about the holiness of God. We don't think seriously about the perfection of God. We don't think seriously about the goodness and glory of God. Instead, Uh, Instead, it's like one writer said, God sits very lightly upon us. And because God rests very lightly upon us, especially as Western American Christians, it's very easy for us to imagine that God just winks at sin and says, you're my kid. It's going to be fine. What the author, what Hebrews is saying here is quite different. He's saying it is no light thing to remove the wrath of God and restore a person to his good favor. It is not a small thing. It is a big thing. In fact, this whole section is proving just how big a thing it is, right? The whole section is saying, this is a big deal. Being forgiven is a big deal. Having God's wrath removed is a big deal. Why does it take all of this to have the wrath of God removed Uh, removed from a person it took a merciful and faithful high priest which required an infinite and perfect sacrifice 
which required the death of the perfect son of God, which requires the God of heaven and earth to come and live and walk among us, which is the opposite of a simple and easy thing. It is no small thing to have the wrath of God removed. It is the biggest thing in all the universe. But for that to happen, a big thing needs to take place. The very, the, very, the very first thing in this chain of redemption, the birth of the child. The birth of the child has to happen. The Son of God incarnate. What does the author say? He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful high priest in the service of God. Think of the logic here. Think of the argument. Think of what he's doing here. The only way he can, be, can help us is if he becomes us. To quote Irenaeus again, that which has not been assumed, has not been healed. He becomes us, he bears our sins, and he sets us free. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. It is infinitely costly. He is, he's merciful. He's not strict. He's not harsh. He's not uncaring. He's merciful. That's the nature of this high priest. That's what he's like. Why? The author connects his mercy with his own experience living among us. He says, this is what he is like because of something that happened. What happened? Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So because he knows what it is like to suffer under temptation, what is he? He's merciful to us when we're tempted. Uh, John Owen says that his mercy here, what do we mean when we say his mercy? His mercy here is his care and compassion for the needs and sorrows of his brothers as they suffer and are tempted. How often do you think of the compassion of Jesus? Is the compassion of Jesus something you dwell upon? One of the great things that you see in scripture is that the, the psalmist talks about meditating upon God as he lays on his bed. You ever wake up earlier than everybody else and you lay there in bed and if you're anything like me, you think about stupid things. You think about stuff that doesn't matter. Probably you're worrying about your day before it's even begun. And yet the psalmist says, I think about God as I lay in my bed. Wouldn't the compassion of Jesus, wouldn't the, the mercy of Jesus be a great and glorious thing to dwell upon as you lay there in bed? Just giving you an idea, some fodder for early morning, why am I still, why am I awake yet kind of things, especially during the week between Christmas and New Year's. It's a weird week. Everyone gets to sleep in, but they usually don't, at least I don't. Uh, he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be offered all the world. He knows what it's like to be offered the things of this earth, and he knows the suffering that comes when we follow the path of God. He's merciful in part because he walked the earth. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Some of his mercy is grounded in his experience as the son incarnate. That's what he's saying. As hard as that is to believe, it's, it's very hard for me to piece together the, the person of the son and the experience of the incarnation and knowing that the son is in some way the way that he is because he walked the earth. Here's my question. As this season comes upon us each year, do you find yourself remembering that in Christ, God is not angry with you? 
that his anger has been removed from you if you're his child? Do you reflect upon the fact that the entire intention, the entire intention of the coming of this child was so that you and I could approach God unafraid in total peace with him? You have a great and merciful high priest. And he's not your great and merciful high priest because you're fantastic. He is your great and merciful high priest because of what he is like, because of his loving kindness. And so if you have received and rested on Jesus, you live under the mercy and under the protection of the most secure kind, the rescue of a great high priest who is perfect in his service, complete in his work, and never in a way that ignores the holiness and perfection of God. The child was born. And it matters because of why he was born to save his people as their high priest. Have you trusted in him as your high priest? You know, the birth of the child itself does not and cannot save. Uh, it isn't just who he is that saves. It's not the fact that he was born that saves. It's what he does. It is his service as a high priest that matters. Have you trusted him? as the savior of your sins, as the one who offers your sins, as who offers himself for your sins. Have you trusted in the savior yourself? You know, you're not required to know all the fancy terminology. You don't need to know what propitiation is in order to enjoy propitiation. Thank God, right? (laughs) Uh, Because surely you sense the need though. You may not know what propitiation is, but you know that you're a sinner. You don't know what propitiation is, but you know that you're guilty. Uh, You don't know what expiation is or any of those other fancy theological terms are, but you know that something's wrong between you and God and that something needs to change. If that's you, the invitation is held out today as it is at all times. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Today's a day for us to remember that God was born on this earth. He really lived and walked among us. God lived among us. God walked among us. He walked this earth. Jesus Christ, the creator, was one of us. He didn't merely pretend to be one of us. He wasn't similar to us. He wasn't like us. He was one of us, and he is one of us. And that is why we are here, and that's why This church exists. It's why we have a gospel to preach at all. It's why the angels sang. And it's why we can approach our God without fear. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when we think of the incarnation, we are thinking of the unfathomable. How could we have ever even imagined this kind of rescue? How could we ever, in all our cleverness, in all of our best efforts, in all of our wisest wisdom, ever dream up a rescue in which you walk among us and live among us as one of us, bearing the sins of us? And even as we learn of it, We can express the truths you've revealed, but we can't comprehend it. We can't wrap our heads around it. We can affirm it. We can teach it. But we can't fully embrace it and understanding every in and out. 
And here before us is the truth. You loved us. You sent your only son for us. What more can we say but thank you for the most precious gift? It is in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.